I mean, for sure, the first time you run through courses, it takes you a lot more time to put them together. My benefit was having a teaching postdoc where when I needed to spend eight hours on a one-hour lecture, I got to spend eight hours on a one-hour lecture, and my postdoc advisor was a prof in an undergraduate institution and said, go teach. This is what you do during, you know. So it was a little different environment. So when I got into my own position with my own sort of responsibilities, I had a binder full of stuff. And instead of it taking me eight hours, it took me, you know, 90 minutes to put together my hour lecture. And, you know, I, I was a little, I, I, except for the occasional case where things hadn't gone so well, like I was rethinking things. But it was, when I started, I was sort of ahead on that kind of thing. And so I wasn't trying to balance getting a lab up and running when I was learning, sort of learning to teach or learning to put things together. And I found that to be very, very helpful. Um, my, I hired in at the same time with another organic chemist. We were both right out of postdocs. He came in as right out of a research um, postdoc. He struggled significantly more. He also had two little kids at home, and that balance was a lot more difficult for him. Um, so I, I think it just depends on sort of where you're at and what you're doing. Um, the other thing was is that I had my lab sort of started in the summer. I got my lab up, up and sort of, I wouldn't say started. It, it was set up. <laughs> it was ready. It was waiting for people. Um, but I didn't actually start. My first research students started that spring. Um, and I actually was really glad that I had agreed to take them on because I think had I not agreed to take them on, I would have sat in my office and worked on teaching materials the whole time and it would have just gone by. So actually having a commitment to those students who showed up at my door and said, okay, what do I do? <laughs> oh, right, you're here. So I you know, kind of had to make that, that transition, and, and that was actually quite helpful. Um, but, I mean, certainly the travel thing, you just can't. Um, you just can't pick up and travel like that when you're teaching a lecture that means four days a week, or you do it, I mean, like, you just, you can't. Your obligations are, when school is in, school is in. And, Actually, one of the things I didn't mention, but one of the things I do really like about the undergraduate environment is it's very, very cyclical. Um, so I'm someone who does like to put a lot of attention to one thing at a time, um, but I get I, I get restless as well. I, I get frustrated. I hit walls, and so I love that I'm ready to go back into the classroom now. Come September, I'm ready to get back into the classroom. By the time I have poured everything into you know spending 80, 90 percent of my time in my classroom this fall, I will be ready for January when I don't have teaching obligations and I can either get into the lab or do some writing or do what I like. So it, it has a bit of a flow to it. By the time we get to the end of the school year, I'm really, really ready to focus on, you know, 90% research for the summer. And it, it has this flow to it. So you get to work really hard for some period of time and then you get to switch gears and work on something else really hard. And there's a nice ebb and flow to that where when you get frustrated with what you're doing, you kind of get to put it away for a while, and it you know rattles around in your head. And by the time you get back to it, you've kind of sorted out what experiments you need to do, or where you need to go, or what direction you want to take. And in some ways, I consider it a luxury. So you get to sort of sit and wait on it. What is your um, I am in uh, inorganic materials research, specifically for solar. I, I was actually hoping I could maybe talk with you after the session. <laughs> so something that uh, those of you in academia can address is uh, the idea of tenure. Um, it seems like that's what everybody seems to work towards during the first five, ten years. And once they get tenure, then they can actually go out and do what you want to actually study. 
Um, have you found that during the tenure process, trying to get tenure, that uh, uh, in some respects you've maybe had to compromise some of your integrity with research so you could publish stuff a little sooner in order to get enough publications out, or has that never, not really been an issue? Has that been something you've had to struggle with? I know that that does happen. I mean, people will split up a study so they can get multiple. Uh, one, of the, one of the reasons you can't really do that in most places is because it's not only the number of publications, it's the quality of the publications. So they'll, you know, some institutions literally have a list of the top journals in your field, and if they're not in that journal, they don't count. Um, and whereas others use a weighting, you know, if you're the top tier, it weights so much in an equation versus second tier, things like that. Um, uh, I was at the University of New Orleans, so it was, uh, they didn't necessarily have a, a li actual list, but they, they kind of, you kind of knew what you needed to be in. And then you had to have external, uh, you have to have external, uh, you know, evaluations of your, so your material is all sent out to experts in your field that you've never worked with that are recognized experts, and then they write a letter about. So, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't ever feel that I had to do that. I do, I do say that one thing you, that you may have a tendency to want to compromise on, though, is you go where the money is. So it's like you were talking about. You know, if I, you know I'm really, I love violence. That's the thing I'm really <laughs> into. Okay, I mean, I, I've, I'm just, I love it. But there's not a lot of money in it. In fact, the, the feds fund very little actual violence research. Uh, and uh, in fact, the, the section that funds it gets is just minuscule in comparison. So you know, I have to to get the money for it. I've had to seek out foundations and things like that. And those foundations tend to have agendas, like they'll want me to look at a certain drug, or they'll want me to look at a certain. And so you do compromise slightly in that you, you know, I have a I have a colleague uh, at another institution that he studies antisocial personality disorder. Uh, but he knew there was lots of money for HIV research. Mm -hmm. And lots of people with HIV have antisocial personality disorder because they're drug users. Mm -hmm. And so he wrote this big HIV grant, never done HIV research in his, his life, got a huge grant to study HIV and and he never analyzed HIV did. He just wanted the antisocial personality did. So I mean, so yeah, I, I know people that do that, that kind of compromises what you're, just to get the money. Um, I think once you get yourself more established, don't worry about that as much. I think it's, you can be much more focused. Um, you know, I have a, a psychiatry friend in medical school, and he tends to go with pharmaceutical money, and that has a, a really pretty tremendous kind of baggage with it a lot of times. Do you do you deal with any pharmaceutical money? Do you? Uh, yeah, actually a little bit, but not not in the sense of um, us testing drugs or doing any right, clinical, clinical trials. Drugs. And there's a lot of money in that, but then it has, it's kind of dirty. <laughs> so, so, so those are the only kind of compromising things that I've, I've ever really been seen or been associated with. But as far as, you know, having to compromise what you want to do, I don't think, you know, they, they'll, I think it's really important that you articulate to them very well what you anticipate yourself doing. I mean, that, when I was the chair at the University of New Orleans, I mean, that's what the first question I would ask the person. What, it, what is your lab and your, your work going to look like five years from now? Um, and, you know, if the person couldn't articulate that, and how are you going to fund that? And, and what if that, you know, what's plan B? Because everyone would say, I'm going to get a K award, or I'm going to get a whatever, these are NIH things. Well, what if you don't get that? What are you going to do? Uh, and if there's no plan B, then it's unlikely the person, they're thinking you didn't think it through well enough. 
in the interview process. Right. And I and I think what's important about that is if you if you very clearly articulate where you see yourself going, then I don't think anyone's going to expect you to vary from that. They they see that that's the trajectory you want on. You study X, you know, and they don't really necessarily see you get you know, too far afield from that. Um, I mean, they are hiring you to do whatever it is that you're telling them that, that you do, so you can pretty much stick to that. Yeah, I would say, um, first, the tenure expectations are really different between research universities and small colleges. So for me, I mean, I'm working with all undergrads, so again, the pacing is just really different. I get 10 weeks of 40 hours a week, and that's like that's them working all the time, right? We are we're not doing 80 hour weeks in the summer. We're doing 40 hour weeks, 10 weeks in the summer. That's my push, and then you know a handful of hours during the academic year. So, um, I need two papers in peer reviewed journals prior to tenure. That's our sort of academic. Is that six years. Two, two papers in six years. Uh, technically, it's fall of my seventh. Okay. Um, so, it's which is really, I mean, which it sounds really reasonable until you get in and you realize you've got, you know, ten weeks worth of work and you've got undergrads you've never done work before. So, it, it, I mean, at some point that can be really challenging. We just put a paper out. So, again, it's expectations for what those papers are going to be. What it, you know, what do they do? Um, I'm happy with my writing paper ended up. It's not in the Journal of the American Chemical Society. It's in the Journal of Organic Chemistry, but it's published by, by um, American Chemical Society. So I'm not unhappy with that, but I think you do have different expectations. Certainly, um, authorship changes when you move from graduate school to an undergraduate institution. You go from wanting to have only one author to wanting to have as many undergrads on your paper as you possibly can, because they're different. So it's just, there's different things that shift around that way. Um, but my tenure decision is based on scholarship, and that means, do I have those two papers? Have I tried to get money? Maybe I had to get it, maybe I didn't. That's also going to be a big difference. Um, there's a lot, especially at private institutions, there's a lot of sort of safety net. So if I, for whatever reason, am without funding, my department or the division is going to come up with money to support a student. It's going to happen. Um, my research program is not going to have to come to a screeching halt because I don't have whatever to support a student. And many of my colleagues, not many, some of my colleagues you know, have been years without external funding and there's ways to make that work and you can still get stuff done. Certainly external funding is looked on well. Um, and it makes things a lot easier. You do what you want, you don't have to think about it so much, whatever. Um, but I also have to be an exemplary teacher. And that's not secondary, it doesn't get to be secondary, it has to be sort of primary. Um, the fastest way for me to get kicked out is to not be good in my classroom. And it doesn't matter how good I am in my lab or mentoring students in a research environment. If I can't teach and my evaluations are lousy, I'm not going to get tenure. Um, there are also components of both advising and service that play into my tenure package. And those are um, weighted maybe slightly less, but again, the advising plays into teaching. Service tends to play into scholarship, depending on what you're doing. So um, it's a really different different boat. Now all that to say, I've known people who've been really, really worried about getting those two papers out. Right? As graduate students or postdocs going in, that doesn't sound like very much, but when you sort of factor it into everything else, it can be really challenging. Um, I'm quite happy with where we're at, but I didn't. I don't think I would have expected necessarily for things to have gone as they have gone. So um, would I have sent my paper out a year later? I wasn't just trying to get that paper out, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. Um, sometimes I wonder in retrospect if I would have held it, you know, 
hmm, I could have put those other results in it. Well, you know, but I was really eager to get that paper out. Um, do I think the science isn't good or the integrity of the science isn't good? No, the science is good. Um, would it be stronger with a few more results? Eh, maybe, but that might just be my inexperience in, you know, deciding to when to when to publish as much as it was, you know, integrity of the decision when the study was done. I just, I'm not sure I had as firm a grasp on when that was going to be the case as it was. And, Okay. So how would you describe the new requirement for the new environment in, in contrast to that? You know, I never even, when I was, my first, and my first uh, I got tenure at the University of New Orleans long before I ever came to Baylor. Right. Um, I never even thought about tenure before I took that job. And even after, when I took it, within the first two weeks of having that job, see, they, the university gives you a document that has these tenure guidelines in it, but they're very vague. I had the same, exact same areas that she just said teaching, research, service, professionalism. Those are the four, okay? Right. And within the first two weeks of me being there, one of the senior uh, tenured faculty said, we need to go to lunch. This is his, he does this with every new. We went to lunch. He said, let me just tell you how it is, okay? You publish two or three papers a year or more. Get a grant. Show up for class, but don't try too hard. Don't volunteer for any committees, and you'll be all right. He's, and that's exactly. And he says that to every single. He does that to every single person that comes in there. And, was and that true? And that's absolutely true. And okay. so, um, I think that. Uh, yeah, I mean that's absolutely true. I don't know how many articles I had by the time I came up for tenure. I came up a year early. I went up a year early. And how? What teaching load did you have? I had two and two when I first started. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, but I know that the most articles I published in a year was six. And and but I but I've averaged over three since I graduated from graduate school. But and these are all in like what kind of journals? They're all in one or tier one or tier two. Yeah, I mean it's all I mean it's all peer review. I mean there's no reason to send anything to a crummy journal. If it's not going to count, why would you send it? Right, right. You know. So uh, now again, depending on the university you're at, they may have a little bit more leeway on what they consider a top journal versus a, you know it doesn't have to, you know a person might. Yeah, very few people are going to publish in science, you know, that, or nature. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, I know, I actually know a couple of guys that have published more than once in nature. But I mean, they're like, I mean, you know. And one thing I, I think you do to yourself is I, early on, you know, I was like really driven to, you know, no matter how many hours you work, no matter how hard you work, there will always be someone smarter than you that will do more work than you will. And, and just like there will be people that don't do as much work than you that are. So the thing is, is that you just need to do it. You need to do a quality job out of, you know, out of your own integrity and worship of the Lord and, and, and not worry about comparing yourself to other people, you know. And and can I just say, if you're at Harvard or MIT, oh. everybody's smarter than you. <laughs> smarter than you. Right. I'll tell you right now, my postdoc is ten times smarter than I am. She is smart. She does things with that equipment. She went back there one day, and she had a, a screen up. I go, I didn't even know it did that. <laughs> so well, I, mean, I feel like that a little bit at the University of Pennsylvania. Although I accomplish more because I have lower standards, so I, I actually get more done than some of these really. But I tell you, if you'll just, you know, I tell my students this all the time: if you just work hard and be nice to people, it'll go, it'll go a long way. And you know, I know a lot of those really smart people, and I've done studies with a lot of those really smart, and it. It's just because you, they know you're going to be consistent and, you're, and you do a good job and you're nice. I mean, it, it just goes a long way. 
that's all about the networking. You go on all those meetings and going up to people's posters and you know watching to see when the actual you know PI shows up at the poster and you kind of go over there to talk. You, know, you just want to meet people. I know four, um, three of my six graduate students that I finished PhDs. Their postdoc was directly related to somebody that I knew that I had met, um, and as I was trying to develop my own career. So it, uh, I always say they're they're the greatest. Thing that I'm ever going to develop is you Your know it, any paper I write is you know going to gather dust on some shelf somewhere. But mm -hmm. the graduate students are going and train more people and and, and do, so you know I really invest a lot of time in there, them and them. But yeah, when I when I, you know, she had a teaching postdoc when I'm the first time I walked into a classroom to teach, the, all the teaching experience that I had had is when I was in other than teaching neuroanatomy lab to undergrads it was like basically putting pins in a sheep brain. Uh, was I had taught one section intro to 16 people. I had never taught one. I walked Did in a... Did you school or anything? Oh, no, I taught nothing. I mean, I walked in, I walked in a room like this, and I'm like, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. I had, I had these, you know, hour-long presentations I thought that I put together. It took me about 20 minutes to go through. <laughs> well, and I would actually second what you just said in terms of what you produce. I mean... At the rate of a paper a year, the only way people are going to know me, if I get to that rate, if, if I get to that rate, but if I get to a paper a year, the only way people are really going to know me is by knowing me, which means showing up at meetings, specifically small meetings. So you're a chemist, so, you know, Gordon Research Conferences are a great way to go. Um, but really getting to know small groups of people reasonably well are really effective ways to do that. But what I hope and what I've told people repeatedly is I want you calling me in the fall of every year saying, who do you have coming down the pike for me? Who do I need to be talking to? Who do I want as a graduate student next year? Because if my lab is known as producing good graduate students, then the rest of it is sort of is gravy in very similar ways, right? The papers are training exercises. My research is important, and I'm happy to do it and I'm glad to contribute what we contribute but at the end of the day it's another form of teaching and that's just the reality of, of what we do and that doesn't mean we can't solve important problems in some ways we can solve even riskier problems because we're cheap um, it just doesn't cost very much to run my group our salaries are you know nothing <laughs> so um, but my students are still by far the most important thing that I produce Have more of an academic. Yeah, um, well, maybe some background on, on both of us. So we're both students at Oregon State University, um, probably graduating next year, but maybe for me, maybe the year after that. I'm sort of in that indeterminate state. Um, so I'm in physics, she's in chemistry, if you haven't figured out she's a chemist yet. Um, so at the moment, we're leaning towards academia. I lean more strongly towards a smaller institution. She likes the idea of a larger, uh, maybe not research institution, but a larger like university. Um, so at the moment, we're kind of thinking towards postdocs, because those are going to be something that getting into an academic institution is going to really help. Um, what advice do you have in terms of finding a postdoc? Is that something probably you get through your advisor? an interesting experience when I was um, trying to decide where, what to do at the end of my PhD. So I, um, I thought, I was kind of irritated that I had to do a postdoc because I really wanted to go to pharma or biotech or whatever. So uh, I thought, if I'm going to do this, I am going to go to like the super most stellar 
postdoc anybody could possibly ever do. I'm going to pick a really big name lab, you know, super top notch. I'm going to go there for like a year or two, and, and I'm, out of, I'm out of there. So, um, so I interviewed all over the place, picked like the top big name people in the field that I was interested in, which at the time was places that were doing automated microscopy of some sort or another. And one by one, um, going to all these different places, the PI was usually like 50 to 60, the lab was like 20 to 30 people, and I realized that um, I was not going to get any kind of training whatsoever in these kinds of groups. That if anything, I would be taught by other postdocs who were more senior in the group. I would never see my advisor. They'd be traveling all over the place giving talks. and so. I, um, the, I had just on a whim, I had, um, I had um, made arrangements to interview um, with David Sabatini at the Whitehead Institute, who was like probably not that much older than me um, and was like kind of superstar guy, but, um, but very, very young and just absolutely loved his group because it was 10 people and he was very involved with each person. And um, so I ended up going there and I'm really, really glad I did because um, I think to some degree being in a, so I, my advice is, is actually to pick a, an up-and-comer because it's the person who's going to be famous 10 years from now, but, um, but who has time to devote, time and energy to devote to you. They're still maybe on their way to 10 years, so they're really hungry and motivated and, you know, enthusiastic, and you'll actually get to interact with them. So I think I'd caution against picking the, the big name labs where you're never going to see your advisor. I did just the opposite. <laughs> I, uh, I um, was studying impulsivity and, and was somewhat in, interested in aggression, but impulse control issues, and I knew exactly who I was going to work with. There was only like two guys in the whole world that were, the, you know, Hans Eisnick or Ernie Barrett, and I was going to go work with Ernie Barrett, and uh, that's what I did. And, and, it, and he was very old, and, um, but what... What worked out good to my it, for me was that he only had uh, uh, the only other person in the lab with me was a research tech. Um, he um, he was a uh, difficult person to get along with, and so uh, <laughs> there weren't a lot of people that wanted to be there. And so uh, I I I and I can get along with anyone. And so, so and so I worked with him for. Uh, several years and we were very productive and it actually worked to my great advantage um, because I did kind of endear myself to him and everyone knew that I was um, that I was his last I was his postdoc that I had done that with him and so uh, strangely enough when he died several years ago he was really elderly when I was, um, that um, I had replaced him on the editorial boards he was on I have taken over for him on the scale that he developed, that I helped develop him. I'm in charge of that now. I mean, I was looked to as the heir apparent uh, wow. for that. And so it's been really, and, and, and I've always, I've, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. If you can pick the right person that's up and coming, then I'm just not smart enough to figure out Well, it out sounds like you is, are so. the up and coming person. But it just <laughs> is. But you took the small lab approach. I, right. And, and the thing right. was, it was, and, and he was incredibly dependent on me because there was nobody else but the tech. And so, uh, but yeah, I, I think it's all about who the mentor is. I mean, that postdoc's going to get you a job. Um, and for my, you know, I, I, did your, your mentor help you find that one? Find the position? I, not really. It was sort of, but he could, he easily could have. I mean, my mentor helped me get that. And then I've, I've subsequently literally would pick, will pick up the phone and call, you know, hey, you know, I got a student to be graduating and I think it'd be good in your lab. 
So, you know, so I'll call people and or I'll watch for, you know, sometimes, you know, I know somebody, a place, and they have a T32, it's a place that's going to come open on it. And, uh, but I'll call around. Um, but, again, I, I know mentors that don't do that, too. But I, I do that because I really invest a lot. I really look at my graduate students like my children. I mean, that's really – I really, I have them out to my home. I mean, really invest a lot of time in them, uh, you know, for a person who hates undergraduate teaching so much. It's kind of fun. <laughs> 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 yeah, but undergraduates. Yeah, I don't do a lot of mentoring undergraduates either, but I like graduate students. Well, if you mentor the graduate student while well, they mentor the undergrads. That's how I set up the lab. The graduate <laughs> students supervise the undergrad. Yeah. yeah, I would, um, so I came out of a big research and, uh, research group. Our group ranged right around 30 most of the time, and it was half postdocs um, and half graduate students. And as a graduate student, that was phenomenal. I think as a postdoc, it was really pretty phenomenal for most people as well. So I really think that what you said um, that's most true is it really depends on the mentor. So it really depends on who you pick. Um, in our group, we did things a little differently. I think maybe in chemistry, things get done a little differently, where the rule was you had one letter out asking for a postdoc at a time, um, rather than the interview lots of places and choose. That sort of was the culture. Mm -hmm. And I think so it depends a lot between fields as to sort of what is accepted practice and what is kind of, oh, I offered you a position and you're going somewhere else? Wait, that's... So in, in organic chemistry, that was not so well looked upon. Um, you sort of wrote a letter and said, you know, I'd like to come work for you in this capacity, and then you sat there and waited until it came through or it didn't come through, and if it didn't come through, then you sent out another letter, and if this happened enough times and you got close enough to your defense date, then you started to scatter letters, but that was never a first, <laughs> a first round of, you know, a first course of action. Um, so watching all this go on in my group, I actually dealt with my teaching postdoc in a really similar way because I didn't know how else to do it. Um, I was, I also am involved in a dual career <laughs> two-body problem. My husband's also a PhD organic chemist. And um, he was behind me. Well, we started together, but he was going to finish behind me. So I really was geographically limited in terms of where I was looking. And so I was looking at the small colleges nearby and saying, who's really at these institutions? What's the top of these institutions and who's doing, you know, like if I pull publication records, sort of who's the top of the game in this area? And I you know, sent him a letter like everyone else in my group was sending letters and said, I'd really like to work for you. There's this money I've identified that I can't actually apply for, but you could apply for for me and maybe we could make this work. And, um, but I very much was in the same mold as everyone around me because that's what I knew how to do. Um, but again, I was looking for someone who I thought could teach me how to really be at the top of that, at the top of that game. So going into your postdocs, you're going into areas that are very similar to what you had done your PhD in. When I took mine, I cared very little about what the research was. <laughs> to be really honest, I didn't care what the science was. I wasn't. I figured I could make any. I could make molecules. I knew how to do that. It just was a matter of which ones I was making and for what purpose. So I was much more concerned with someone who could teach me and mentor me in, in my classroom that I could really get involved in a in a group that was productive on our scale. And what did that look like, and what was that model? Um, a little more than I actually cared about what the science was. I would have made molecules for anybody. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't going to go too far outside of organic, but um, I didn't really care what the <laughs> what the point was, so long as you know I got to learn the other things. So I do. I would say that I was looking for a broadened experience, um, but I knew exactly what I was looking to get out of that, and I would guess that you know scientifically. 
My, he was, it was exactly what I was arguing, you know, it was just at a bit, at a higher level. So, okay. but I, you know, I was just looking at that as a, I mean, that was just going to propel me was what I, that's how I was looking at that. It is an odd kind of self-serving relationship when you're a stock, <laughs> you know, you're, you're helping them, but you're really using them the same. And another thing I would encourage, right, they're using you. Right, they're using <laughs> you. And, and it's a give and take. So you really have to make sure that you're going to get out of it what you think you're going to get out of it. Uh, you know, I think you need to be really proactive on, on the postdoc. You know, if your mentor uh, isn't, you know, helping you or, or if, even if they, he or she is, I mean, there's nothing wrong with literally sending an email and saying, I'm going to be graduating. I really like your work. This is what I'm doing. You know, do you have any funds type of thing? I mean, I, I, by the first postdoc I ever had, that's how he ended up, I ended up hooking up with him because he just literally emailed me out of the blue. I, one of my graduate students uh, uh, she wanted to go work with this uh, one individual that I did not know, and I said, "Shoot him an email, just do it," and uh, and and she ended up working in the lab. So I mean, it, if it's sincere yeah. interest, and if you have you know good reasons, it's clearly not a massive Right? But yeah, it's not know. like you know you just pull okay, out when the, I get the ones. I'm like, you really have it. So I mean, I think you just be really, you can just be really proactive, you know, and say, "Well, I, I've picked out the people that I really like to work with, you know, and this is the guy." So. Um, you can't just wait until they put an ad out because by the time the ad goes, sometimes the ad is just a, a forced thing. They already know who they're going to hire anyway. They're just forced to put the ad out. So. You had asked about switching fields, and I think in biology it's, it's um, super common to switch, um, and that's what I did. So I studied DNA using robotic microscopy in my PhD, and then when I went to a postdoc, I was taking the technology but wanting to apply it to something totally different. So all the labs I was applying to were completely different areas of science, and the one I joined was a really different area. And then unexpectedly got involved in computer science during my postdoc, so that now I'm leading a group, a computer science group, which is completely bizarre. But um, so um, definitely they say that in general, switching fields, or that's maybe too strong a word, but delving into other areas and blending two different things that you come across during your career. It, postdoc is a great time to pick up some different, either different skill or different model organism if you're in biology or you know, different technique or something. Because it, I think um, it's in the hard sciences, you probably don't want to keep doing exactly what you've been doing all the way through. It's a great chance to pick up something new, and you're never going to have another opportunity to say, oh, I wonder if I should start learning how to do this other technique that I've never heard of before. It's going to be really hard to do that in the first couple of years starting up your own group. And also, I just want to say, I think the postdoc, um, I, can, I approached it as a very reluctant thing, that, oh, I have to do this to get uh, the good job that I want. But it turned out, and I've heard this from many other people, that it's just the most fantastic time in your career because you have almost no responsibilities to anyone but to do a research project. And it's really, I enjoyed it immensely. Um, and then you start your own position, you suddenly have all these stresses that I was talking about before, but that was just like pure research time. Um, and I, I, I enjoyed it. It's a really great period of life, I think. In light of that, too, you probably can comment even more, more accurately to it, but certainly my understanding is if you're looking for NIH, postdoctoral money that you're going to have a lot easier time getting it if the training potential is higher. And so the closer you stay to what your graduate work is in, the harder it is to get that money um, because the training potential is seen as less mm -hmm. by the reviewers. So um, if you're moving this, so in my field, if you've been doing methodology and making molecules and you decide to keep doing methodology and I'm changing metals, <laughs> people are like, uh, pretty much you're still doing organometallic catalysis. So 
best of luck. You know, it's whereas if you're moving from spectroscopy to synthesis or vice versa, now there's a huge difference. Now your focus is really different, and the training potential, so to speak, goes way up, and you tend to review better. So to some extent, it sounds like it's important to have something new. And, and actually, I wanted to um, ask about writing, too. Um, I, I've, I haven't really written a grant, but I'm becoming aware that this is something that's actually incredibly important. And so are, do you have any suggestions for grant writing? And then also, uh, it seems to me, or I've, I've heard people say that it's important not to just tag off of what your graduate work was or your previous experience. So again, do you have any, any suggestions for writing well and coming up with your own ideas? second one of those is really hard. You have to ask these guys. I don't know about my own ideas. That's, that's hard. Um, grants, I'd say it really depends on what kind of grants you're looking at. So if you're looking at startup grants, the mode and the sort of voice that you're using is going to be really different than if you're looking for grants based on primary, you know, preliminary data already or pilot study. I guess it's sort of a difference in terms. Um, I had decent luck with startup grants. Um, I haven't actually gotten a big sort of government grant yet, so I'm still working on those, but um, getting people to read stuff is hugely important. Um, you mean like, and like review it before you submit it kind of yeah. thing? Okay. Getting people's feedback on it is really important. Um, I actually took a course on grant, and I yeah. took the grant during that, that course. That seems I mean, to be... a lot involved in writing yeah. grants. Yeah, it's non-trivial. My department's not going to get a second. A lot of it, I mean, I know I, um, I went to several workshops, you know, societies that I belong mm -hmm. to. They had grant-writing workshops, like Society for Neuroscience is one I belong to. But they, every, NIH puts on a workshop every year. Um, and then NIH puts on workshops that you can actually pay to go to. And your mentor will pay for you to go there a lot of times. Um, but, you know, another thing you can do... Um, is you know collaborate with somebody who is already already really kind of knows the ins and outs of that, and you're going to be like a co-i or, or you know or some something on the grant where you're just in charge of putting a piece of it together, work through a piece of it, and you kind of get that. The best thing for me is somebody's walking you through the process the mm -hmm. first time because mm -hmm. it's just a ridiculous nightmare of forms <laughs> and this and that. Also, the infrastructure of the university that you're at or the medical school is really important. If they have a good grant writing office, it will greatly facilitate what you do. They'll even have people there to help you word what you do. I know the University of New Orleans actually brought in a former person like like you and uh, every year they would pay for him. he was retired he would come in and he would literally st spend an entire week there on campus and we would set up appointments with him to bring our grants and he would he would take them that night go through them and he'd come back the next day give us pointers different things like that it was really really invaluable mm -hmm. so make one quick comment. you asked about legacy too so this issue of translating things on right. and I was warned very significantly especially in the startup grants in chemistry, that legacy was a really bad word. You didn't. You wanted to show that you were independent from what you've done. I'm not sure Especially that that's the case. How are you going to compete with your old, your old <coughs> okay. I think. Well, I think it depends on. I think it depends on the field because there are some fields where you know the postdoc is sort of your chance to get your stuff going, and that does happen in some labs. And I actually get that makes me nervous, but. Um, setting yourself apart that you're not doing exactly the same thing, especially in startup grants. I think it's perhaps less relevant once you're, you have data and you're moving forward. And if things happen to move in that direction, I think people care less. But 
certainly when you're starting, I think stay away. I would I would definitely look to move away from. And almost everybody, the first thing they do is write an internal at your institution. They'll have some oh. some seed money. Okay. So you write a little internal, get some money, start doing the science, and then write something out of that. So um, a couple of pieces of advice. One is um, is to find somebody to read grants, which is not easy because if you're writing a 25-page something or other, no one in the world really wants to read it. But um, I think you're in a good position, actually, because um, you can read each other's grants and you're probably going to be compelled to do so. And it's actually good to have somebody who is out, who's intelligent but outside your field because mm -hmm. I think one of the mistakes beginners make is assuming that everyone on the review panel, well, they're experts in my field. Of course, they're going to understand the logical flow of my project, and so and you have you'll be shocked at how much you have to sort of dumb it down to to some lower level to get people to understand what you're talking about. So if somebody who's outside your field just has no clue what you're talking about, it means you probably have written it to the wrong level. So. Um, so that's one bit of advice. If, if not, just find, find anybody to like partner up with. They don't have to be an expert at grant writing, but just say, you know, for these next few years as we're going through this, um, these career stages together, let's just have a little covenant here where we're going to send each other these miserably long grants and we're going to read them for each other. And, and we're not going to be embarrassed about it. Right. Because you'll find it very, you know, it's great if you can find a mentor. I mean, of course the best case scenario is to find somebody in your field and have them read it, but frankly nobody's... Well, probably not going to have that much time to do that for you. So if you can find somebody who's at your level who is, you know, going to be throwing them back at in, <laughs> in your yeah. face, that'll be good. Um, and, as, and the other advice is to get successful grants from people in your in your exact field. Mm -hmm. And um, I've been shocked when I've um, it's a little maybe a little bit um, not normal, but I've emailed colleagues in the field that I respect that I don't necessarily know that well, but. Have you ever had a grant go through the study section? And if so, would you mind sending me the scientific section so I can take a look at it? And you just learn so much reading other people's successful grants. Um, and going coming to the Broad, I've been blown away reading um, grants that Eric Lander writes, and you just like it's just jaw-droppingly beautiful writing. And I thought I was a good writer before I joined the institute and started reading other people's grants, and I've just been shocked at. Um, so I think reading grants and having other people read your grants is probably the best. And don't. Don't underestimate the power of a well-written grant. Um, yeah, I was going to say you've you've it's seen a lot of this. Say, good science is hard to communicate if you can't write. Definitely, I don't know if you want to know about technical aspects of writing a grant, but certainly. Well, I mean, a lot of the grants end up in in government funding agencies anyway. So, absolutely, I'm very interested in what you I have mean, to say. The, the most important thing, I think, is something that Anne was saying to be really clear in your logic and to have it at a level where somebody who is a little bit outside that field can understand it because study sections don't always have somebody that's an absolute expert in your area or they may have they may have some expertise in your area but may have other people there that if they don't understand it they'll probably downgrade it and with and neither of you would be probably getting funding from NIH, so maybe no, that's not no, your issue. But really the pay lines at NIH are really terrible right now. And so, I mean, it's like yeah. the top 10% are getting funded. And so if you don't fall into that, then you have to go through the whole thing again. And Keep in mind, even if the reviewer is in your field, um, they may be skimming it on the plane with their crying baby and their right. whatever. So even if somebody is very smart and knows exactly what you're doing, they're reading it under circumstances which are not ideal, most likely. So. Okay. It just I, has to be blatantly obvious what you're doing. I was shocked the first time I went to a committee. I was on the study section. Oh, 
I, I just I lost all faith in the process. I'm like, these people, these people didn't even read anything, and they're they're voting on this stuff. I was, I was shocked. But you know, I, there was I realized early on there was not much money, and this is something my mentor had taught me. That there's not much money for aggression, even though we like to talk about aggression all the time. Like, you know, you would have thought after the Columbine thing, you know, they said they were going to put all no, it was almost no money. <laughs> so, um, but he got me onto fel- uh, to foundations. And uh, I've just I've just made a career out of going and smoothing foundations. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just they have lots and lots of money. I mean, and they love to fund good ideas that they think are along there. So you get on their website and you see what their agenda is, and you see if what you want to do can fit. And you you have you have industry that you can look to. Sure. You know, maybe not using foundations, but for me, there's just tons and tons of foundations to go talk to and. Um, yeah, and it, it works two ways. So um, from my specific group, what we would do is we would be asked to come up with a research plan that would have about, you know, five to ten year horizon and decide broadly on you know, six or seven areas that we'd like to be investigated. We submit that to a committee, so we have someone in our group who goes and represents us. So Intel has a research council, and they fund research. And we will then say we, are, we would like to work with, you know, on, on this area, we'd like to work with this university in this area, we'd like to work with this university. So from, from our side, we would know who the good universities in the area are, but um, so th- that is the side of it that I'm familiar with. There may be a reciprocal side where um, you can apply to the research council to get the work done. So it, it sounds like in terms of companies, the important thing is knowing people within the company um, and being able to say, hey, I've got this interesting idea, and I think it might be related to something you want. Yeah. Um, something that was very interesting for me was moving from a small company to Intel. Because all of a sudden, a lot of professors wanted to talk to you. At a small company, it's yeah. the other way around. You saw they had a good idea, went to use it, but um, you know, certainly there are professors that, I mean, they're well established enough. You would go to them, but um, at conferences, people really took the opportunity to come up and say, oh, I heard you just moved to Intel, if they've known me before, or you know, made sure I was introduced somewhere because they know that there's funding available. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a side note, but does it ever bother you when, when people do that sort of networking? I mean, we all, in order to advance in this sort of career, you have to have that network of people. So are there, is there anything that really drives you crazy when... <laughs> That somebody might do if if they're just trying to network and make those connections? That's a great question. Um, I think in general people, in my experience, people always err on the side of being too timid to interact with people. Almost always. And there's a couple exceptions. Um, <laughs> um, I, I think the only exception, like, I mean, if you have even bare minimum social skills, you can tell when somebody's just not interested 
to talk to you. So, like, yeah. I mean, it, it's it doesn't take it doesn't it's not rocket science. So, um, I think in general, people are too timid. People are too nervous to contact someone. Oh, I wouldn't want to bother them. But like, sending somebody an email is not that intrusive. And you explain who you are. You explain what you're interested in. You ask if they're interested. You know, if you then follow, and maybe you send a follow up a week later if you've heard absolutely nothing. Oh, just checking in. Have you, you know, did you have a chance to think about this? That's fine. Um, and every once in a while, somebody is like really aggressive and like calling me and everything else. And that I mean, it's just a turn off. But that's kind of just com basic common sense. So I don't, I don't think there's any other circumstances that most people would think is a nice normal thing, but is actually really irritating. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, uh, uh, I remember that phone call I made to this engineering sure. manager, and it took the person I worked with probably three weeks to talk me into just picking up the phone and calling someone. Wow, okay. <laughs> and in um, once you're on the other side, I mean, you're delighted to take a phone call from someone, not that it you know, happens very much. I mostly will, will get a call sometimes from maybe a student I met or a professor just checking to see if we have an opening or they saw an opening and they have some connection and they want to just send you their resume directly. But you're delighted to, to talk to them, but mm -hmm. it is absolutely frightening. <laughs> I don't mind at all when people, the only thing, only thing that ever bothers me is when a, when a prospective student want contacts me and, and to tell me what they're going to do in my lab. So, which I have had a few times. You, like they're like they're they're just way overconfident about themselves in that it's like, well, I'm, you know, I know that you do this, but I'm really interested in none and and I really think that I could really do, you know. And, and you're like, what? And How so, is that different though? So that, that needs more explanation. How well, is it it's And here's what I'm interested in. Here's what I'm interested in. That's okay. fine. But here's the study that we're going to do when I get there, and it's not what I'm doing. You know, that it just, it just comes. But I, I love when people, graduate students contact me all the time, or people want to be graduate students. So you find the best people that way, frankly. So the attitude you're looking for is, I hear, I, here's what I understand that you do. Here's what I'm interested in, and I think that it could really play into yeah, well, who, what you're here's doing. Here's who I am. Here's why I'm contacting you, yeah. and this is what I think will come out of it. Okay. You know, and that, that's that's as know. opposed to this is what's going to happen because right, I'm it's presented you. in a, it's all, I guess I guess I said they, they present it more in a peer way, like oh, the, yeah. you know they're you know sure. they're because what I already know is they may be really smart, but I already know that I'm going to have problems mentoring them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I already seriously. I'm sure. Gonna, sure. Yeah, teachability is an important feature. <laughs> Both once you're when you're trying to get a position and actually once you're there, one of my colleagues talk all the time about, you know, you're teachable mm -hmm. versus, you know, you seem to be struggling on your own and I'm trying to give you advice and you're nodding your head and saying yes and yeah, you're ignoring me. Um, not a good way to go, for the record. Um, I would say that the hardest one is actually something that happened before I got my first position. Now that I have my position, People take me significantly more seriously, but in organic chemistry, it was such a strange thing, such a strange road to take to go to a small college that I got a lot of flack, especially coming out of a big research group, that all you want to do is teach. Like, why would you be here if all you want to do is teach? And there was a lot of that attitude I dealt with um, at early, well, in graduate school in general, but in early meetings and whatever, where everyone seemed to have a better idea of what I needed to do than I did. Well, don't you just, you'll just go to an R1. You should just interview an R1. And this and that. And you're just like, no, that's really not what I wanted. And that was a very stressful interaction. 
um, in general. So that's why one of the reasons I say I think what I'm doing is perhaps not as common within those fields as, as it might be. But um, that has significantly faded once I got my position and I'm out presenting and I'm talking to people. Now it's very much shifted to who do you have in the pipeline and who should I be contacting? And you know, if you've got good students, you know, I walk away from those similar types of meetings now and I get email boxes full of people I've met who said, you know, don't forget I'm out here, you know, you got good students, make sure they're applying here. And so it's a really different shift in in that mechanism. So I just think it's you know, so I'm hopeful that that's <laughs> that I'm beyond that state of things, but I've had that problem. To understand better your question. Oh, okay. Are we out of time? I guess we have Okay. So. Did you have a, a quick word? I quick to ask. I was just going to say something. It's okay. Well, I, I asked a network Terrible pass, we all do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes me feel better that the path 